Thank you, all you ministers of music. Thank you, all who have gathered to worship today. When you think about that prayer that uh, not only Mackenzie offered with us, but also that the choir has led us to consider and to offer, it's really quite an astounding prayer when you think about it. The invitation to the mind of Christ that is the very seat of Jesus' own ethic, Jesus' own way, Jesus' own will, not only ride alongside us whispering in our ear, sort of like GPS when you miss a turn and it just says correcting, correcting, or recalculating or something, but to live within you. And to hold that space open in such a way that you are indwelt by the powerful and loving presence of the very mind of Christ. That's really at the heart of hearing what Luke chapter 19 has to say to us today. The invitation for Christ to live within us. To live not just beside us, certainly not only ahead of us, or behind us, or over us, or under us, but within. What might that do? And what might we need to do to hold that space open and to keep the door open as well? Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, a familiar story. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All of the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said, not to them, but to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I have half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. May God bless the reading and the hearing of the word today. Well, as I indicated in the video announcements over the course of of this Lenten season, we're going to take a word, just one word, and sort of anchor our reflections in it. Each of these, and they're not the only words, 
I think we could use, but they're good words. Each of these in some way is a milepost or a sign or a marker on our journey with Jesus to the cross and beyond to Easter. And so we begin today with a word that has a lot of power. And it brings up probably a lot of thoughts and memories. That word is lost. It can mean a lot of things. Every once in a while, it has some sort of positive association for us, doesn't it? We, we might try and lose weight. Or we might try and lose our dependence on material things. Or we might try to lose the toxicity that's somehow just part of a relationship. We might want to lose some of our ego. But when we think about it, those aren't really losses as much as sort of fine-tuning of our lives. After all, if we lost all of our weight, who would we be? Where would we be? And so it's not quite the same as what we're talking about biblically when we talk about being lost. In small ways and large ways, when something is lost or someone is lost, it causes some level of distress. When Janelle and I first welcomed children into our household, of course, the first was Nathaniel, and um, just about concurrent, simultaneous with his arrival home was the loss of one of the fobs to the car I was driving at the time. It was my favorite fob. And I'll tell you why. The other fob, for some reason, it wasn't the battery, I checked it. Uh, it did not have the automatic power lock, unlock mechanism and all those things. So I had to do it the old-fashioned way and put the key in the, in the lock to unlock and, and relock the door. There was one working fob and one uh, non-functional fob. And for some reason, the working fob disappeared. It was just gone. And I looked everywhere I could to find said fob. For months and months and months and months it was gone. And I'd finally just sort of given myself over to the old-fashioned way of manually locking and unlocking my doors. And I was ready for the 1990s again. But then as Nathaniel started to make his own way around the house, as he walked around and, and he talked very early, of all three, he was probably the earliest talker, he would just sort of chatter at us. When I was in my office one day, I, I saw my young son standing at the door of the office, digging in his ear with a key, a car key, and chattering at me. And so I relieved him of that little dangerous uh, implement and realized it was the missing fob. It was gone in a great mystery and returned in an equally mysterious way. So, I guess I lost something. And I was really distressed about it just because I was beating myself up over that, recognizing that my working memory, my short-term memory, is really, really poor. And so I have to lay out my entire life in such a way that if I'm looking for my wallet, it's in the same place every single time. If I'm looking for my keys, it's in the same place every time. That's just how I have to live my life because I can't remember if I set something down and walk away from it without having a nice, 
fixed spot. But it was really more inconvenience than anything. Let's compare that to a, a remarkable discovery that I made last week. Not really discovery. I knew this document existed, but I was looking for another church document at the time. And a number of years ago, what we uh, chose to do instead of pay the bank to have a safe deposit box is we got a fireproof kind of strong box at the church. And I thought maybe, just maybe, what I was looking for was in there. And so I opened the strong box and I looked in there and near the back in an envelope is the handwritten deed of sale for the piece of property that we are now sort of occupying from August 1878. Exchanged for the bargain price of $1. Some of our charter church members made this land available. Also the hand-drawn sort of survey map. Fascinating as I read it, that beautiful antique script in its yellowing, still very legible. But as I read through it and saw those names, Trice, Pickett, you know, they just have such resonance in this church. And to see that history and to begin to imagine what it was like as they stood around the table and with all of the hopes and aspirations and dreams and prayers of what this church might become, those folks gathered around and signed their name and affixed their seal, and it was recorded in the courthouse. What an amazing kind of journey of imagination and memory. So my very first inclination was to pull out my phone and scan that thing. I'll show it to you eventually, but It'd be distracting today. Why that instinct? Because I knew just how vulnerable to, to any sort of problem it may have. Not just my working memory, but nothing's forever. And when that document goes away, of course, we'll still own this property. We'll still occupy it. We'll still worship here, but something's been lost that deep, deep connection to our forebears and the hopes and the vision and the dreams that launched this congregation that we continue to abide in, live in, and express our faith within and from. Oh, I didn't want it to be lost. Not in that original script as best as I could. You know, uh, few weeks ago now, and, and it's been a very rapid turnaround. My brothers and our spouses had the talk with my parents. You know the talk I'm speaking of. The talk that says, we're not sure anymore you're safe and secure right where you are, mom, you know, with your two new knees in your bedroom on the second floor and the nearest child at least an hour away in Richmond, and all of that that goes along with that. We finally mustered up the courage to have that conversation with them. They were remarkably responsive. In fact, I was telling Judy Rigsby uh, the other week 
that as they responded to us, they almost immediately said, well, we'll move to Richmond or we'll move to Durham. And of course, there was Team Durham down here and there was Team Richmond up there. And Judy was, was, was Team Atria, right? She said, tell them to come to Atria. It's a great place to be. Um, and I'm sorry to say, Judy, uh, she's not here. Judy, she listens online. Uh, they've chosen Richmond, and that's excellent. There are two sons there. But as we start to make plans and as they've identified where they might uh, inhabit, there is this kind of pesky detail of 50 years of life at 18 Bell Plains Drive, Fredericksburg, Virginia. A basement full of furniture, a house full of furniture, and we know it's not the furniture. We know it's not about the rugs. We know it's not about the knickknacks. We know it's not about the china. All of those things might be gone tomorrow, but what's gone when they disappear? It's all of those relationships and associations and memories and everything that's wrapped around them. And so as we've talked about that experience of downsizing and what it is, what attaches to that is so much grief. And it's not an unwillingness to lean into the future, but it is a reticence to let go of those material things that speak so profoundly of the relationships that matter to us and the memories that make us who we are. Loss is a very real thing. And when we talk about lost in the Bible, it's more that kind of sense than losing your car keys. Yes, Jesus told stories. He told parables about lost objects. But those were simply an on-ramp to the deeper spiritual and personal and individual imagination and understanding of what loss really means and what it threatens for us. The same word that it, we read in Luke chapter 19 that's translated as lost in other places is translated destroy or perish. All of those words communicate not just loss, but irretrievable loss. Once it's gone, we can never get it back. And so in Luke chapter 15, for instance, after Jesus tells a couple of stories about a lost sheep, and then he tells the story of a lost drachma, he tells the story of a prodigal son. Man had two sons, right? One went away, spent up half of his inheritance. He comes back begging and pleading, bowing and scraping. And his father throws this tremendous welcome home party. And when the brother who always dutifully stayed home protests, the father summarizes it this way. This son of mine was dead. And now he's alive. He was lost and now he's found. That's the context in which we hear the story of Zacchaeus. The challenge with Zacchaeus, in many ways, is that he's much more, I think, like the rest of us. I wonder sometimes if Zacchaeus ever thought of himself as lost at all. He may have had a lot of adjectives that he would apply to himself. Lost probably wasn't one of them. In fact, the name Zacchaeus ironically means righteous one. Maybe it went to his head. We know that for a livelihood, 
he was a tax collector. He was very wealthy. And in that time and in that culture, people who weren't tax collectors despised tax collectors because it was their job not just to collect taxes. It's not that superficial. Instead, what they did was they leased these tax districts from the Roman Empire. And so they had to provide a certain amount of, of tribute back up to Rome, but if they overtaxed or they kept the extra for themselves, they were perfectly entitled to do that. There were no checks and balances. They were often very corrupt, and people hated them because they had no recourse when the tax collector came knocking, asking for a certain amount of money with the weight of imperial Rome over their shoulder. And that's who Zacchaeus is, and presumably that's how he gained his wealth. And Luke tells us he's not just a tax collector, he's a chief tax collector. And so we can see it now in verse 3, that this person with an incredible amount of position and authority wants to see who Jesus is. He wants to see Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is gaining a reputation. He's proclaimed good news of the kingdom of God. God's reign is kind of passing along with Jesus' presence wherever he goes. He's making life better for people. He is uh, coming to towns, and he's healing those who need healing. He's teaching as one with authority. And as Jesus makes his way around, his reputation starts to run ahead of him. And Zacchaeus is curious. I wish we could sit with him and have a sort of before and after conversation after this encounter. What really propelled you to look around the corner or over the shoulder, so to speak, and find out who Jesus is and see him for yourself? And I say look over the shoulder, of course, because we know, as the song taught us, Zacchaeus has a problem and the problem is he's a wee little man. But if we fixate on the physical limitations, as we often do in our modern day, we miss the spiritual implications of what that actually means for Zacchaeus. Then as now, they had accommodations that they could make for those who were differently abled, that was possible, though those weren't provided readily and instantly, and they certainly weren't expected or mandated in the way they are now. So just before Jesus comes into Jericho, we find in Luke chapter 18, he meets a beggar who is born blind. This man has no social support, no family who will continue to stand by him, no one who will look after him, and so he has to resort to begging to make his way in the world. Jesus heals him of that and instantly, right? With his sight, not only comes the incredible experience of being able to see, but also to re-enter that societal life. He can be a part of life in Jericho again because he can see with his own two eyes. He's knit back into the community. That's the power of healing. It's more than just a gee whiz, look what Jesus did to a pair of eyes. It's a restoration. 
to relationships that are life-giving and mutually supportive. There are others we find in Scripture who wanted their hurting friends to see Jesus. And I'll never forget uh, the story, because we did it every year in Sunday school, of uh, the, the paralyzed man who had friends who cut a hole in the roof, right? To drop their friend down into the middle of Jesus' teaching and interrupting that experience, those friends took a risk to put Jesus in front of one they believe can make a difference. Zacchaeus has no friends like that, and I wonder why. No one is going to step aside to let him see. No one is going to go out of their way to make sure Zacchaeus can get what he needs in the moment. He's burned, poor soul, all the bridges that might be sustaining for him in his family or in his community. And Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. When Frederick Beekner summarizes the condition of Zacchaeus in that moment, he says, Zacchaeus is a sawed-off little social disaster with a big bank account and a crooked job. And I want to emphasize the social disaster rather than his short stature. Because that, at its heart, is what ails Zacchaeus. It's what ails most of us most of the time. When we become disconnected from one another, when we become disconnected from God. Deep down, that is a good definition of being lost. Zacchaeus is not to be deterred, of course. He runs, said Luke, which is a very undignified thing for a Jewish man of any status to do. It's the same thing the father does to the prodigal son when he sees the son coming from the distance. The father starts running, and it's very undignified. It's kind of a scandalous moment in the parable. And he climbs a tree, which is not something you would expect a person of any means or status to do as well. And as Jesus finally comes to where Zacchaeus is, he stops and he looks up and he calls out to him. And all of a sudden, our focus should change because we don't hear now anymore the story of Zacchaeus. We begin to hear the story of Jesus and what Jesus is about. Zacchaeus as he sees him, you hurry down. It's not, uh, it, it, it's, it, there's a sense of urgency here. And then, I hope you heard it when I read the story, I must stay at your house today. I must. Must? What's so special about Zacchaeus? Surely it's not about the food. It's not about the food. It's not about the furniture. It's not about the decoration. But somewhere deep down in the heart of Jesus, when he sees this man, he knows he must stay with him. And that word stay is so neutral sounding. But again, and this isn't, uh, it's not a Greek lesson today. I've done this to you a couple times. This word that's translated stay is the same word that Jesus uses to his grieving disciples in John chapter 15. 
It begins in verse 4, and he uses this word over and over again. And in your translation, it'll probably say something like this. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And that word remain, to stay, is the same word that Jesus is using about what he must do with Zacchaeus. The old King James gets us a little closer, and I've always loved this word, and we don't use it enough, abide in me. Abide. To linger. To be with. To inhabit. The message, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase, I think captures it in its fullness. He just goes right for it. Live in me. Make your home in me, just as I do in you. In the same way that a branch can't bear grapes by itself, but only being joined to the vine, you can't bear fruit unless you are joined with me. Live in me, just as I make my home in you. This is the deepest possible relational talk I could imagine out of Jesus. So to say, stay, he's not inviting himself to the supper table. He's inviting himself to the very heart of Zacchaeus' life and his family and his decisions and his wealth. And it may seem presumptuous to invite yourself to dinner. How much more presumptuous to invite yourself into the middle of somebody's life. But I must do that, says Jesus. He's just passing through Jericho. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And yet he must abide with Zacchaeus. He must. And of course, there's a complaint now. Because Zacchaeus, surprise of surprises, is overjoyed and welcomes Jesus in. And people start complaining. Complaining that Jesus has singled out the one person in their social order who had no business being the first to welcome someone like Jesus into their life. Think about those complaints. We hear them. We offer them. One thing that I'm learning in my own personal journey is that we're really good at naming about three emotions in our life. Um, happy, sad, and angry. Uh, but if you ever have the chance to read Brene Brown's Atlas of the Heart, she tells us about 87 different emotional experiences and said the more literate we become in talking about our frustrations or our uncomfortable feelings or our comfortable feelings, we can actually understand what we are experiencing and take action that works with them or in some way tends to them. So as an example, they're complaining, but I wonder why. I wonder why they're complaining. Is it jealousy? Jealousy is that emotion we experience when we fear losing something to someone else. And so you become fiercely protective. Maybe they're afraid Jesus is going to form an alliance with Zacchaeus, right? And he's going to become part of that Roman problem. Or maybe it's envy. Envy is not the same as jealousy. Envy is resentment that's formed because we see somebody doing something we wish we could do. 
a lot of our envy is looking at somebody else. You know, when you come home and you're busy and you're frustrated and you see your kids playing video games and maybe your spouse is just sort of relaxing, taking a nap, and you get so mad and you get resentful, you're not resentful for what they're doing or not doing. It's that you're not, for whatever reason, allowing yourself to do the same thing. Maybe they're envious because Jesus has chosen someone who isn't them conspicuously. Or maybe they're resentful that in some way they've tried to do the right thing and they see someone they believe has done the wrong thing and and that person gets priority status. I don't know. Maybe there's shame. Shame is a powerful place in all of us that fuels a whole lot of anger. Maybe they're ashamed that in some way they've been complicit in the state of things, that they've gotten along and gone along and just tried to stay out of the reach of Rome, and so they've just sort of paid as they've gone, or they've gone along with the system, and that they've got some sort of complicity in it all. And now they're ashamed as Jesus shows up and they realize, oh, we don't know. We know they grumble and complain. And we also know that in response, Jesus doesn't say a word. It's this new friend he's made, Zacchaeus, who speaks on his behalf. We have to think about that for a while, and that's a sermon in and of itself. But Jesus has made the choices he's made to befriend this person who had no business being part of the great promise and salvation of God, and he's inhabiting that house and that life. He's at the center of that life, and in response, and oh, I wish I could have heard that table conversation, Zacchaeus then opens his hands, he opens his heart, and he opens his pocketbook and says, I will make it right. And this person who had built a life on taking has now become generous. It is the sign of a transformed life when we move from words to real actions. It is the sign of a transformed life when what we uh, used to hold on to now becomes a gift to be shared. How does our mission, a vision statement go to be A growing community alive with Christ, energized to do what? Share God's transforming love. It's not the only way transformational love will show up, but for Zacchaeus, it is a powerful testimony of what Jesus has done in his life. And he's not doing it now as some sort of virtue signal to the world. He does it as an act of devotion to his Lord. Look, Lord, this is what I'll do. And with his personal commitment, he shows forth the reality and the power of the transformation that has come to visit him. It's the last thought for today, of course, is that when we talk about being lost, it may or may not show up in the ways that we've been stereotypically accustomed to understanding it. It may be that we are living lives that are quite powerful or content, 
but they become distant from God. Or they become distant from our neighbor. And in seeking to live our lives, we've forgotten that sense of common connection that is at the heart of our created being. Sam said it very well. But the purpose of church, of course, is to introduce people to God, is to, is to be a facilitating space for that relationship to grow. And it's a place to facilitate the relationships we have with each other. Jesus declares a verdict over the day, and it's not, well, he's still got work to do, though he surely does. And it's not, well, you all have a point, you critics, though they surely do. Salvation, he says, has come to this house. And he's not talking about Zacchaeus. He's talking about himself. And each and every time we gather as a church and we pray and invite Jesus into this space, we are welcoming the salvation that can only come from God that knits together our lonely lives, our estranged lives back into the very life of God. And knits us together as a community. That's one of the things salvation means. And so consider today where you might be in all of this. As we look down the long road to Easter, we're just getting started. And it's time to scan your life, to sit with some of those uncomfortable feelings you may not have a name for, some of those difficult awarenesses or memories regrets or pains that you believe are too personal to name, not even to yourself. And instead of sitting in the lostness and wondering what to do next, begin to see what we see this morning, a Jesus making his way to your house, your heart, your mind, your life, your history, your future. And saying, I must live with you. What will you do?